BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. Community members in San Francisco are pressuring District Attorney Brooke Jenkins to release video of the killing of Banco Brown, a 24 year old trans man who was living on the streets before he was shot by an armed Walgreens security guard. Banco Brown's case is just as important as the Cash App case. My people are important. My people are important. Earlier this week, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors held a meeting and joined the call to release the tapes. And during public comment, the pressure was on. We want to see the tapes immediately. Release the tapes and justice for Banco Brown. Please insist that this DA show the evidence. It's time for her to stop rationalizing inappropriate behavior. So all I'm saying is I just want justice for my twin. That's it. That's all. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Brown was killed while allegedly stealing food from a Walgreens on Market Street late last month. Some were quick to label it as another example of San Francisco's so-called lawlessness. Others saw it as a cruel reminder of the violence that unhoused people face and how being Black and trans can only make you more vulnerable to that violence. Being hungry is not a crime. Being homeless is not a crime. Being black is not a crime. What is a crime is our human rights to be constantly violated and dehumanized. Today, the life and death of Banco Brown and what it really says about San Francisco. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. On April 27th, there was an alleged shoplifting incident. Nula Bashari is an opinion columnist and editorial writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. A private security guard employed by Walgreens, Michael Earl Wayne Anthony, drew his gun and shot and killed Banco Brown, who is a 24-year-old Black trans man. Whether or not he was actually shoplifting is up for debate. Some people say he had a receipt. And what he was shoplifting was up for debate. People were saying a sandwich. Supervisor Peskin told me $14 worth of candy. I've also heard cereal. But what we have heard from witnesses and people who were there is that the security guard attacked Banco Brown. He's much bigger than Banco Brown and threw him to the ground and Banco got up and left the store. And it was only after he left the store that the security guard went and shot him. And so there were some allegations that Banco Brown was armed. That seems to not be true. Um, The district attorney has confirmed that he was not armed. Um, There is also, you know, an allegation that he spit at the security guard. I, I don't know whether that's true either, but it does seem that he was shot outside the store on Market Street itself. And I know so much of this is still up for debate because, as you mentioned, we have not seen the video. Uh, The district attorney has not released it. But what happened immediately after the shooting? I do believe that the security guard was taken into custody and was held in San Francisco jail over the weekend. Banco Brown was taken to the hospital, but unfortunately did not survive. And the security guard was actually released a few days later. The district attorney said that there wasn't enough evidence to charge him. And so that drew a lot of anger and frustration from Banco's community. We're furious. We are hurt. They took someone from us. There's been a huge outpouring of frustration and anger and a huge call to action for District Attorney Brooke Jenkins to release the video and potentially even to press charges against the security guard. Because I'm really upset at the fact that they're dehumanizing Banco. Okay, I don't appreciate that. This this child could have been my child. What was uh, his family's reaction? What have you heard from his family? You know, I have not personally talked to his family. I've heard them talk and I've, I've heard them quoted in the media. I think one of the really awful things about this slaying um, is that the narratives in the media and on Twitter in particular and online have been really awful, you know, saying that Banco was armed, that he deserved it. A lot of kind of accusations about who he was, alleging that he was violent. And for people who loved him and knew him and did not have that experience of him, it's a really awful thing to to go through those comments and hear those narratives. Something that I think added insult to injury was the way Banco was actually identified by San Francisco police in the immediate aftermath of the killing. Is that right? 
Yeah, so the police announced immediately after the killing that a woman had been killed, and the medical examiner released、um, Banco's birth name. There's a lot of tension in the queer community and across the country with something called dead naming, which is when you release the birth name of somebody who's trans、um, in a way that can be hurtful or kind of dismissive of their gender identity. And so there were a lot of accusations that the city dead named Banco. And I did actually talk to the medical examiner about this,、um, and understanding a little bit of what they have to work with, I think it is a tricky situation. You know, they look at IDs and they look at medical records, and if there's nothing in either of those that identifies somebody as trans, they go with the birth name. But you think, especially for young people, for people who are unhoused, the hurdles that you have to jump through to change an ID or to access medical care and gender affirming care are pretty huge. So it, it just added insult to injury, I think, for people who are feeling really dismissed and erased by the entire process. So I want to talk about Banco Brown's life. He was. As we were talking about, a 24-year-old, a black trans man experiencing homelessness. What have you learned about Banco Brown and where he was at in the months leading up to his death? So Banco Brown was involved with the Young Women's Freedom Center for around a decade. I read. He was really a mentor to a lot of younger people. He brought other youth into their offices to organize for criminal justice reform issues. He spoke in Sacramento about the needs for youth housing. Everyone I talked to who knew him from the Young Women's Freedom Center said he was really funny. He was kind. He was thoughtful. He was always making people laugh. He was just a really lovely person to be around. He was. Really wrestling and tackling、um, his gender identity, he luckily seemed to have some really wonderful、um, mentors in the community. But I think within that, he was struggling to find places that felt safe for him. It seemed like he was a pretty skilled organizer. He knew how to advocate for himself. You know, he was waiting in line at shelters. He was taking housing assessments to see if he could get a permanent home. He was on wait lists for various places and was working really hard, but just wasn't making a lot of headway. He told、um, one of his mentors, Julia Arroyo from the Young Women's Freedom Center, that you know he didn't feel safe in the kind of gender binary of often congregate shelter spaces, and so being categorized as a woman, he didn't feel safe there. Categorized as a man, he didn't feel safe there. He really wanted a trans-specific place to live. That's where he felt most safe, and he couldn't find that. And so he had started sleeping on BART trains and in doorways, even at the Young Women's Freedom Center offices. You know, he was just really tired and really struggling, trying to make ends meet. I watched him get jobs, and it wasn't enough to be able to live here in San Francisco. He could not live here. Julia Arroyo, the co-executive director of the Young Women's Freedom Center, also gave a really passionate speech at the Board of Supervisors public comment, talking about、um, how she is trying to help these kids, but the systems are really set up against them. And he always was providing for other people. And so many mentors told him that, you know, you got to take care of yourself first. But it just was not enough. It wasn't enough. His last week of his life, he said, "Juju, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping outside. I, I, I haven't showered. I'm not myself. I'm not myself right now." He cried. And I remember he'd be like, "Juju, don't make me cry." And I'd be like, "You cry right here." 
Because you can't cry out there. And that's a pretty common story, right, for a lot of trans folks experiencing homelessness uh, and, and just struggling to find safe housing, even in San Francisco. Yeah, it is. San Francisco has done a lot of work, particularly in the last year, to try to alleviate that. Mayor London Breed announced a plan to end trans homelessness in five years last May. And there's been some progress made towards that. There are a few resources we have in San Francisco that are really rare, I think, in this country. We have a navigation center that is just for trans people, and that's run by St. James Infirmary, and they have about 57 beds that are taken right now, but they also have a huge wait list. There's the Bobby Jean Baker House, which is a really wonderful transitional housing program, but it only has 15 beds for people exiting homelessness. And while it's helped 38 people since 2019 get off the streets and into housing, there are 96 people on its wait list. There's also rental subsidies, which are a really good um, idea that San Francisco has to help people who are on the margins of homelessness. There's about 150 people who've been served by that program, but there's 143 more on the wait list. And so when you start looking at these waitlist numbers, you can really see what Banco is up against. It just feels notable to me, too, that something like this would happen even in the city that established the first transcultural district in the country, this place that really sees itself as a sanctuary for trans people. But it, it sounds like Banco was someone who was willing and, and ready to accept help from the city. It just didn't exist for him. A- and I guess I can't help but wonder if he was housed and if he had the support that he needed to get on his feet. Could all of this have just been avoided? I wonder that too. I think about that a lot. And it seems like his family and community believe that. You know, they believe that this situation at Walgreens was born out of desperation and that if he had the resources he wanted and needed to survive, um, that maybe it wouldn't have occurred. Nationally, I'm thinking about the killing of Jordan Neely, uh, a black unhoused man on the New York City subway, which actually happened around the same time as Banco Brown's death. I guess, what do you make of these two high-profile instances of Black unhoused people dying because their alleged killers say they felt unsafe? I think the two stories really go hand in hand. Both of them were hungry. You know, Jordan Neely was complaining that he was hungry. Banco Brown was trying to find food. Like, that is absolutely tragic that when people are hungry and are expressing a need for that, we are killing them. I mean, that's absolutely nuts. What, what is it going to take in order to change these narratives around the killing of Black people and the killing of homeless people? Just in the past few months, it's been nuts, right? We've had the hosing incident. We've had the bear spray incident. We've had Banco Brown be shot. And with each of these, there is a kind of outpouring of uh, frustration and, and a general consensus that this shouldn't have happened. But then there's also this other side, this contingent of people who are like, they deserve it. You know, like they are ruining my walk to work. They are making my life difficult. And I do feel like that kind of vitriol and rhetoric is getting louder. 
So, I mean, why do we need armed guards at Walgreens? You know, I think it's it's coming out of a lot of those narratives that, you know, shoplifters are really dangerous and homeless people are really dangerous and we need to arm people in order to protect our product. And shootings like Banco Browns are the result. You write in your column that it's time for a serious moment of reckoning. What would that look like? I think in an ideal world, it would involve really serious investment in public health and housing and addressing the homelessness crisis on our streets from a humanitarian and a public health perspective. These tensions that exist between residents and businesses and unhoused people um, and people experiencing poverty are not going to go away unless we solve the root causes. That's the moment of reckoning I'm talking about. You know, we can continue down this path of arming people, of bringing in more private security guards, of rolling out more police, but I do not think that that is actually going to solve anything, really. I think that in order to address this crisis, we have to work with the needs of the most vulnerable, and those are the people who are sleeping outside. Well, Nula, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, I really appreciate hearing your perspective and uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. On Tuesday, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors unanimously approved a resolution calling on DA Brooke Jenkins to release the tapes of the shooting. Board President Aaron Peskin has also said one option on the table is to subpoena for them. As of this recording, Mayor London Breed has not made public statements about the killing of Bingo Brown. She's currently in Israel and is scheduled to return on Monday. Thanks to Nula Bashari, an opinion columnist and editorial writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. This 24-minute conversation with Nula was cut down and edited by producer Maria Esquinka. Alan Montecilio is our senior editor. He scored this episode and added all the tape. The rest of our podcast team here at KQED includes Jen Chien, our director of podcasts, Cesar Saldana, our podcast engagement producer, and Katie Springer, our podcast operations manager. The Bay is a production of KQED in San Francisco. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.